we're going to jump right in today. I've got quite a bit of stuff to cover uh, as we finish up the series on Jonah. If you've been with us, you know that the past four weeks we've been covering Jonah's chapters one through four. And so if you've been with us for a while, you may be going, there's only four chapters of Jonah. You got through chapter four last week. What are we talking about Jonah today? That's a great question that I will get to in a second. How many of you grew up hearing the story of Jonah? You heard the Bible story. You heard like he was swallowed by a fish. He didn't do what God told him. So God ate him with a fish. Like that was kind of the story. Well, we've been unpacking that in a little bit of a different way. In a little bit of the sense of saying that when Jonah received the word of the Lord, the first thing Jonah did was run away from God. And so we've talked about how many of us have run away from God. And that actually the fish was not necessarily a punishment, but it was actually Jonah drowning when the fish swallowed him. So God used the fish to save him. And then Jonah prays this incredible prayer from the belly of the fish. And he's rescued. He's redeemed. He's actually puked out on the seashore, right? And he's standing there and God gives him a second chance and says, now go preach to Nineveh. And he does. He walks into the city and he preaches this message. And amazingly, the whole city turns back to God. And then Deborah Thompson did such a good job last week talking about what she called the awkward chapter. Remember that chapter where Jonah preaches the message, is obedient to God, God forgives the people, and Jonah, in the most spiritual way possible, walks outside the city and goes, see, I told you we were going to forgive him. And he gets all ticked off about it. Remember that? And so today, as we, as we start to dig in, what I want to say to you, what I want you to understand is this. Jonah is actually not mentioned again in the scriptures until we come to Jesus in Matthew 12. It's kind of crazy. One of the most famous stories of the Jewish people does not get mentioned in the Old Testament again until Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus is responding to some Pharisees, to some religious leaders. Look at Matthew 12, verse 38. Here's, here's what it says. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, think about that for a minute. These are miracle chasers. Anybody know miracle chasers? You don't have to raise your hand. But people that are more interested in the encounter with what God can do for them than who God is. They're saying, Jesus, we want a sign. And Jesus, actually, this is why I love Jesus, because he actually gets ticked off every once in a while, and he lets it out. Look at verse 39. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Let me just tell you, when you're reading the Old Testament, and you're trying to figure out what the Old Testament means, you always, if you can, you always want to find out, how did Jesus, how did Paul interact with those stories, those principles of the Old Testament? What did they say? So look at what Jesus says when he talks about the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now we know, we have the benefit of having Easter experiences, right? We know this is about resurrection. We know this is Jesus prophesying that he would die and, and be dead for three days. And then he says, the only sign I'm gonna give you is that you're gonna see me actually come back from the dead. Now, here's the thing. This is the only place that Jesus actually mentions Jonah, but it's not the only place that he confronts the Pharisees, that he confronts the legalism and the super religion of the day that people were so obsessed with. And I actually believe, and where I want to spend our time today, is in another story that Jesus told that I know you've heard sermons on. How many of you have heard sermons on the prodigal son? Like, I preach this sermon at least once a year. It's, it's one of the sermons that I go to. But here's what I've never done. I've never preached this story of the prodigal son through the lens of Jonah. And as I've studied it this week, what I've, what I've come to believe is that I think Jesus was actually taking, when he told the story of the prodigal son, I think he was actually taking the Jonah story and reframing it 
in the story of the prodigal son. And you may not agree with that, but you'll see it as we go through it. Here's the reality of the prodigal son. Look at, look at Luke 15, verse 1. We'll have it on the screen as well. But here's what Jesus says, or here's what happens at the beginning of this chapter. Now, the tax collectors and the sinners, right? I love this. The tax collectors and all those sinners. We're all gathering around. Some of you are like, would I fit in that category or would I be the one judging? The, the, you can work that out as we go. They were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Now, how many of you love muttering people? Don't you love muttering people? The Pharisees were expert mutterers. They were really good, and they were muttering, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. So it's this religious judgment. Sounds like Jonah sitting on the hillside, doesn't it? Look at all these people that he's, he's wanting to hang out with. How dare he do that? These Ninevites, these tax collectors, these prostitutes. Verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. And it pauses there. And actually the whole chapter of Luke 15 is actually three parables, three stories that Jesus tells. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and then what we know is the prodigal son. But I want to challenge you today because the prodigal son is actually not a good name for this story. It should actually be called the parable of the lost sons. Because there's two sons in this story, and we only tend to talk about the one. Look down at verse 11, and I'll show you this story that Jesus told. And we're going to unpack this story as we go. Here's what it says, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had, everybody say it, two sons. Two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now I want you to pause there because I want you to think about what we may miss in this is that this is a terribly offensive cultural thing that this son does. He basically, the younger son, looks at his father and says, I want my money that you're going to give me when you die now. I want you actually, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. That's what he's saying. It was an incredibly offensive thing. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Now he had all the money, now he's feeding pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. By the way, both Jonah and the lost son stories have sons who run away from their goodness of their father. That's where these stories start. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out. I will go back to my father and say to him, father, I was a pain in the butt. I mean, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Now, here's what this son was risking culturally, right? You can study this. You can read about this. There was this custom called quesasa, right? Quesasa. It sounds like a Mexican dish, but it's not. It was quesasa. And when someone was unforgivable, the adults of a village, of a community, would break out corn and nuts, and they would break the, the nuts and the corn apart in front of the children, and the children would pick up the pieces and say, so-and-so is unforgivable, And they would actually cast them out of the village, kind of like a creepy movie taking place, like the kids chasing the unforgivable people out. See, the wandering son left by offending not just his father, but the entire community and taking and selling his inheritance while the father was still living. He lost money to Gentiles. That's a big deal for Jewish people. Thus, he could expect to be cut off. His return to the village would be humiliating. One writer in the second century said it could have even been threatening. He could have faced mob violence by even coming back. And look at the response of the father in the next part of this verse. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Now, if you don't know anything about God, if you're not a Jesus follower today, if I could show you one verse, this would be it. There's a father waiting at the village. The son could have faced violence, and the father sees him. You know what that means? The father walked out there every day going, is he coming home today? He didn't know when he was coming home, but he was looking And then it says he was filled with compassion, not bitterness, not anger, not rage, that he ran to him and embraced him. Parents, this is a whole sermon about parenting your kids. Because he ran to his son, he embraced him. This father, by the way, he would have lived in luxury. He had a great deal of wealth. He probably wore robes all the time. The great philosopher Aristotle said, great men never run in public. If you can picture a man running down the road in robes. There's quite a humorous image there of a father, but it's also a humiliating image for this father. But this father puts himself, listen, in front of the threat that this son should have faced. That's why he goes to him outside the village. I'm going, and I'm going to face the threat instead of him having to take it. Look at verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. See, this father's act of humiliation, of love, of affection undoes the son. One writer says that this son is shattered by his father's demonstration of love and humiliation. Now he knows that he cannot offer any solution to their ongoing relationship. He sees, the son sees that the point is not the lost money, but rather the broken relationship which he cannot heal. This son is the Ninevites, by the way, right here. This son is the son, the Ninevites turning. This is what Jesus does. Look at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, not the shoddy one, not the ragged one, not the ugly one that's dirty from the pigs, but bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to party. They began to celebrate. This feast of a fattened calf would have invited at least 100 people. That was the tradition of the day. If you were going to kill a fattened calf, you feed at least 100 people. That's what they were doing. This is public forgiveness. But then we move to the second part of this parable, the second part of this story. And this is why I say this is the parable of the lost sons. Because now look at verse 25. It says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Anybody older siblings in the room? Just raise your hands. Older siblings, you automatically get this story. You're automatically a little ticked off because there's music and dancing and he's working in the fields, right? Like how dare, you can feel the tone change. So verse 26, so he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Can you imagine the older brother at this point? The older brother became angry, he refused to go in, so his father, watch, went out and pleaded with him. Don't miss this, the father went out a second time. The father went out a second time, one for the prodigal and one for the self-righteous. He left his house once for the one who had squandered everything. He left his house a second time for the one who had been living with him but had been living in righteousness, self-righteousness. See, I want to say to you today, Jesus comes to all the people who are lost. He comes to every person, the people who are lost in their wasteful living and the people who are lost in our own self-righteousness. Look at verse 29. But this son answered the father, look, 
All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. I want you to notice a couple things here. He doesn't address his father as father. He just says, look, older siblings, do you get this? I don't need to worry about my identity with you. I just need to tell you where you're wrong, right? Look, he comes with the spirit of a slave and not a son. He says, I've been slaving for you. He's missed his identity. See, I would say to you today, it's possible to be lost in self-righteousness and missing your identity as a child of God. Many of you are well-performing Christians. You're so moral and good and you have right belief and you have good doctrine, but you have not ever encountered your identity as a child of Christ. One son in this story is rebellious while absent. One is rebellious while at home. I've said this for years. I would much rather ha- hang out with pagans than often self-righteous Christians because pagans know they're lost. Self-righteous Christians are convinced they're not. And that's where we find ourselves. Finally, verse 31, watch how the father responds to the second son. He says, my son, he gives him belonging. You didn't call me dad, but I'm gonna call you son. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. This father reminds him, you're still my son. You're not a servant. You've not been slaving. You're my son. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now I want to say to you today, I want to share a couple things with you because I think this story so echoes the story of Jonah. And I'm going to show you why that is. But what the Jonah story does and what the prodigal son's story does is shows us, it confronts in us, I I believe, three relationships that we've got to understand. Three relationships that these stories say, how's this relationship doing? You ever had a a, a DTR conversation? Anybody know what that is? Define the relationship. Like you're kind of dating. This was Carrie and I in high school. Like we were kind of dating, weren't sure. She kind of freaked out one time and then didn't, wasn't interested in me. Then we kind of came back. And so we sat at KFC and we were like, this is a define the relationship moment. Like what's going on here? This story, these stories define our relationship and they confront us and say, where are you and what's going on? Here's the first relationship that I think it confronts. It's our relationship to God's word. The Jonah story and the lost son story both confront our relationship to God's word. See, we've talked in this series about how many of us, most of us, all of us maybe, have been runaways at one time or another. We are disobedient to the things God has called us to. Some of you sit here and you know the mission God has called you to. You know he has a work for you to do. You understand because it just keeps coming up in your heart. And it doesn't matter if I preach. It doesn't matter if Deborah preaches. It doesn't matter if you're driving down the road listening to K-Love. It doesn't matter. And you know that echo that God puts in your life over and over and over again. And you hear him speaking and you're choosing not to respond to it. Some of us are like that. Some of us have relationships we're called to restore, conversations that we need to commit to having. And simply put, we have just been disobedient to God's word, to us, in one way or another. I believe we've all run from God at times. Now, the question I would ask is why? Why do we do that? Why are we disobedient when we we know we serve a good God? It goes clear back to Adam and Eve, right? See, all of our sin, all of our disobedience is rooted in a refusal to believe. Now, don't miss this, to believe that God is more dedicated to your ultimate good than you are. We rebel against God because we believe that our good is better as we see it than God might see it. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the what? Good of those who love the Lord. But it doesn't define good as your good. 
It defines good as God sees it. Adam and Eve thought this, right? God said, don't eat. You can eat from anywhere in this amazing garden. You're walking around naked for crying out loud. Just eat whatever you want. Don't touch that tree. And the temptation the serpent puts is, did God really say that? He just said that because he knows you. that's really good. Like God's holding out on you. That's the temptation of sin. And when we choose in our relationship to God's word to reject it, to be disobedient, when we choose not to submit to God's word, then our life, listen, left to our own control, will leave us in a spot where we can only be rescued by a good father. That's the story of the lost sons, right? When the prodigal son squanders his wealth, when he runs away, when he gets away from God, the only way he can be rescued is when he comes to his senses and goes, oh, my, my dad is good and I can go home. I can go back to him. Jonah is, is riding on this ship and he says, I've got to just throw me overboard. I might as well die. And he says, that's, that's the only hope for these people to be saved. And the God, the father rescues him in that fish. That's the way God does it. See, biblical wisdom has always been taught to be obedience to God's word, his commands, his wisdom, direction. When we reject that, now don't miss this, and this is so critical. Many of you understand sin as the thing you heard about in church every Sunday morning in a building just like this, and it was guilt, it was guilt, it was guilt, and you grew up thinking, if I just get my sins right, then everything's going to be okay. What I want to say to you is sin is so much bigger than you understood it, because when it comes to your sin, when we continue to reject, to deny, to be disobedient to God's word to us, we have to understand there are consequences consequences to our sins. Jonah rejects God and there is a storm that sweeps across the ocean, the sea on him. Now here's the thing that you got to understand. The, the consequences of Jonah's disobedience didn't affect just Jonah. Many of you are walking, carrying the weight, the consequences of sins that are generations old. You're not guilty of them, but you're carrying the consequences of that sin because someone in your family's past was disobedient to what God had laid out for them. And if we don't end these things, if we don't repent of these things, then we miss it. That's our relationship with God's word. The other thing that I think is so critical here, when we understand that the good father is the one that has to take action, then we start to understand the party is always open and the party's always being thrown by the forgiving father. I was so proud. I got to be at uh, Allie Fell's wedding last night. Allie and Nathan, you guys know them. And I was watching. I'm not a dancer. Like, I'm the best dancer in my house when nobody's there. Like, that's, that's my dance skills, right? That's how that works. But I was watching our church family just party. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, there's a party theology that we ought to have as the church. Because God is always throwing a party for people who are lost. Like, we should be the most joyful place in the world. Some of us walk in here on Sunday mornings, and I'm like, you haven't partied in 25 years. You need to go party before you come and worship, because that's, that's what we got to understand. See, both of these stories, the lost sons and Jonah, show forgiveness and redemption. Friends, you have a good father that wants to rescue you, that wants to celebrate with you, but you will have to respond with obedience and submission to his word. Here, here's the second relationship that this story, these stories confront. It's our relationship to God's world. So they confront our relationship to God's word in our life, but it also confronts our relationship to God's world. If the lost son, the first lost son, is the one that squanders his wealth, that's Jonah in chapter 1 and 2. That's Jonah running to Tarshish, getting on the ship, being swallowed by the fish. But Jonah 3 and 4 is the older son. Jonah 3 and 4 is the son who says, well, look at what I did, and now you've forgiven him. Huh, how dare you? I want you to, to, to get this today. Don't miss the redemption and the party God offers for lost people because you're so busy judging the guests of the party. Aren't we good at that? Aren't you good? Some of you are good. You go to parties and you're like, well, how did they get here? 
Why did they invite them to this wedding? How dare they come to that? Is it a little close to home? How, what, what, how, it, we're good at judging the other guests and missing the party. See, both stories involve the older brother. Jonah became the older brother who missed the gift when they should have seen themselves as the prodigal. Jonah starts out as the prodigal son running away. He ends up as the older brother mouthing off to his God. I want to say this to you. See, the church has always been designed. Listen, don't miss this. The church, God created the church, capital C, the whole church, for the good of the world. For the world to flourish, for the community to get better because the church lives in it. Not for the church to judge the world. That's the way God created the church. So when it comes to things like justice issues, the church should be leading the way. This is not new. You've heard me say this. When it comes to racial reconciliation, having a pro-life ethic that stretches from cradle to grave, understanding how care for the elderly, the widow, the orphan, the chronically ill, the single parents, the immigrant, the refugee, the poor, thinking about equality, the church should lead the way because we have a relationship to the world that God has sent us to. And I want to tangent a little bit here for just a second, but I want you to get this because what we have not talked about in Jonah is the relationship of Jonah's national and ethnic identity and the disgust that it caused in him toward the people that he was called to minister to. We haven't talked about that. See, when it comes to our world, as human beings, we all have, and I just want to show you this, we all have people, groups of people, individuals, other people that we consider to be the other. Do you remember the show Lost? Remember the others, the unknown people, the scary, the creepy people? Like, you know, that's how we define humanity often. We look at people and we go, well, that's the other. Whether it's race, whether it's financial status, family members that you just don't want to sit with at Thanksgiving. Amen? Social distance, political opinions. Jonah, see, watch. Jonah introduces himself to the pagan sailors on the boat. He says, I am a Hebrew. He doesn't say, I am a believer. See, he leads with his ethnicity, not his spirituality. His nationality was more important to him in that moment than his relationship to God. I believe this. See, in today's culture, as Christians, we have to confront the fact that this is often the reality we are living into. Our nationality, our politics, our ethnicity often supersede our connection to the rest of humanity as believers in Jesus. Turn on the news if you don't believe me. Scroll your Facebook feed if you don't believe me. A great theologian, Tim Keller, he says, Christians can never be, first of all, Asians or Americans, Russians or Germans, and then Christians. When they respond to the call of the gospel, they put one foot outside their culture while the other remains firmly planted in it. Christianity is not flight from one's original culture, but a new way of living within it because of the new vision of peace and joy in Christ. By the way, this is why the church exploded and grew. Because when these Christian believers, these followers of Jesus came together, the rest of the pagan world was going, how do they do that? They've got poor, they've got rich, they've got Jew, they've got Gentile. They don't agree politically. How do they hang out together and share food and love each other? The world couldn't figure it out. Today we miss this, right? We, we have this culture of nationalism. When, when, when Deborah talked last week about that awkward chapter that Jonah's, Jonah's angry relapse, right? He steps, he, he's obedient to God, he preaches the message, then he goes outside in the city, he's like, see, I told you, God, you were gonna forgive them. How dare you forgive these Ninevites? What we see there is the ugliness of our culture, our politics today. We have to talk. When we read Jonah, and I don't want you to miss this, I, we have to talk for a second about the love of country, 
because Jonah was living that. The, the, the great theologian, probably the, one of the most brilliant theologians of all time, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, but he was a brilliant theologian. He wrote on the love of country. Here, here's what he said. We all know now that this love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. That the love of country can become a demon when it becomes a god. He, he said, we sense this in our culture. He said, on one side, today, often, and this was, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, but, but it's just as relevant today. He said, on one side, anybody who expresses a love of their country today can often be identified as a racist, a fascist, immediately. There's this harsh judgment. He says, that's just another form of extremism. He said, patriotism is not inherently wrong. Those who see love of nation as always toxic, as Lewis says, have to reject, ha- reject half the high poetry and half the heroic action our race has achieved. He said, Jesus wept for Jerusalem because he was patriotic as a Jew. We've got to understand that. But he also goes on and he says, we could break down our patriotism, our love of country, into several aspects. And he actually identified three kinds. The first, he said, was a love of home. He said the love of home was, was a love for the place where we grew up, the types of people who lived there, of the landscape, the sights, the sounds, the food, the smells, the way of life. This, he said, was least likely to create any animosity toward those who are different. I feel this, right? This is why in our community, if I say almost heaven, you're ready to sing. Get those tears in our eyes when we go to that chorus, right? This is why we celebrate the sacrifice of our military personnel, because this is healthy, This is a love of place, a love of home. And then he says the second level of this is a a particular attitude to our country's past. He said it's when we look. And by the way, C.S. Lewis was British. So if you're offended because I'm slamming the USA, he's British. So this is uh, okay. He said this was an attitude to our country's past, to the great deeds of our ancestors. He said this can be great, but it also presents a danger because we are tempted to airbrush history. He said, we can hide how the actual history, if you didn't know he was British, you will after this quote, the actual history of every country is full of shabby and even shameful doings. Love that, right? That our nation and our culture, like all others, is a mix of good and evil people and elements. So we can hold up and say, we love this country. We love the heroism that took place to build this country. But we also have to be realistic and say much of the industry was built on the backs of slaves. And that was wrong. We can name those things. We can say that we've sinned against indigenous peoples. We can say we love this country, but these things happen as well. That's what Lewis lays out. And he says the third level, which is where it becomes the God, is it's an obsession and an idolatry. When a nation suppresses and erases historical misdeeds, this creates conscious and deliberate feelings of racial or national superiority. Friends, when you read the Jonah story, you have to see that's the pathway he walked that that's where Jonah was struggling. That historically, watch, Nineveh was part of Assyria, and Assyria eventually destroyed the 10 northern tribes of, uh, of Israel. So you know what Jonah does? Jonah was right. When he sat down outside the city and was like, God, you, you forgave these people, and they're, they're going to continue to spit all over us as Jews. Jonah was right. But God was calling him, watch this, to put his word and the relationship of God to people ahead of Israel's national interests. We have to start to understand that because grace will change your relationship to others. Grace, when you start to understand that, that you are prodigal, that you are the self-righteous son, that you are Jonah, disobedient to God, and yet the father has welcomed you home. When we are embraced in love by the other whom he thought was an enemy, Jonah is transformed and it enables him to welcome others who are deeply different from himself. 
See, your love for others must be rooted in your experience of the love of Christ. Let's draw this down from the national level. Who are the people that you work with that you have trouble loving? Why is that? Those are the people God's heart is breaking for. Those are the people that you're called to love. What does our relationship to God's world looks like, look like? Whether it's the Jewish, the Muslim, the African-Americans, Asian, the poor, the addict, the gay, the straight, Republican, oh, Democrats, where are we now? What are we saying? They are all part of the kingdom of God that we are called to love. Jonah is called to a mission. God's people are always called to places where they're uncomfortable and uncertain. If you're uncomfortable and uncertain, guess what? You might be really close to where God wants you to be. If you're not, I think there's room to be challenged. Think about Abraham. I don't have time. There's so many sermons in this. Think about Abraham. Remember when God comes to Abraham? He says, go. I think Abraham's paraphrase was, where? God says, I'll tell you later. Just go. And then later on, he says to Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham says, how? God says, I'll tell you later. Just trust me. And then he says, now you had a son. Offer your son up on the mountain. Let me just, just offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham says, why? He says, I'll tell you later. Just climb. See, we are called to that same uncertainty. The mission of God in our world is to unlikely and uncertain places, just like Appalachia. Can you imagine Ethiopia? How could a church in Appalachia care about Ethiopia? How do we, because that's how God works. The older brother is invited back to the party, and I believe that it was fear and anger that kept him out, just like Jonah sat outside the city. Finally, the third relationship, this is where I'll end today, that this, these stories confront us in us is our relationship to God's grace. For Jonah, for both those sons, the main purpose of those stories, I believe, was to get Jonah, the Pharisees, and us to understand grace. I read this, this quote this week, and, and it, it literally just shook several things loose in me that I was writing this sermon. I read this quote, and I put the sermon down and had to take about two hours to go deal with other stuff in my life that God was like, yeah, don't write a sermon when you're not dealing with this stuff. And the quote said this, grace becomes, when grace becomes the background music of your life, if that's the song your heart sings much of the time, it changes you. When grace becomes that song that's on all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time, then something shifts. See, the relationship to God's grace, the final thing that these stories confront is this is what it says. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. If you've checked out because I bored you with politics, hang, hang, come back. The principle that this lays in front of us is to say the decision is for us. The choice is for us to make when it comes to God's grace. When Jesus tells those Pharisees, you're going to see the sign of Jonah, the final verse, verse 41, here's what he tells them. He says, this sign of Jonah is what you're going to see. And he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh, Jesus says, the ones that repented when Jonah preached to them, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, I'm greater than Jonah. Men of Nineveh, they got it. Those pagans, those people you thought were beyond repair, they got it. He says, now Pharisees, it's up to you whether you're going to repent. See, Jesus, or, or Jonah prayed from the belly of Sheol. Remember we talked about they prayed from the pit of hell. Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He prays with greater intensity than Jonah. Jonah went to the depths of the sea to save the sailors. Jesus goes to the depths of hell to save humanity. When Jesus calls himself greater than Jonah, he refers to the three days and the three nights that he will spend in the grave. I'm going to have the band come, and as they do, I want to tell you this, this final story. Thirteen years ago, a woman named Terry Roberts' life changed forever. 
In October of 2006, her 32-year-old son named Charlie walked into a small Amish school where he had worked delivering milk. And in a brief time, he shot 10 young girls. He killed five of them before he finally killed himself. Mrs. Roberts said she remembered hearing sirens and helicopters and her phone ringing and her husband on the other end saying, it's Charlie, he did it. He committed this atrocity. I want to tell you what happened next. That same day, an Amish grandfather of one of the dead girls expressed forgiveness to the killer publicly. That very day. Later, on the night of the shooting, the Amish community came to Miss Roberts' home and said, please don't leave our community. We want you to stay. We want you to be here. Some of the victims' families attended their son's funeral. Later in the week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the girls. And this should be said, Amish mourners at the son's funeral outnumbered non-Amish mourners. They surrounded this family with forgiveness. Terry Roberts said, for the mother and the father who had lost not just one, but two daughters at the hand of our son to come up and be the first ones to greet us. Is there anything in this life that we should not forgive? Now, listen, this is, this is the amazing part. One of the victims who survived, probably the victim in the worst condition, every Thursday, Terry Roberts goes and cares for that survivor. She goes and spend time, spends time with this girl. So in this story, you have a mother who raised a son who did this horrific damage to this young woman, and the mother has the courage and the strength to come back and care for one of his victims, and the parents of that same victim every week open their door to the mother of the killer. See, the power of this story is incredible. When I read that this week, the, the most fascinating part to me was that the sociologists who were studying this said, we as modern American culture, we can't produce people, cap people capable of that same forgiveness anymore. They said, when it comes to our American culture, we can't do that. The Amish can do that because of their culture. It's different than ours. They said, our culture, our American culture is so strongly now a culture of self-assertion where all the people are encouraged to express themselves, assert our rights, speak our truth. You hear this all the time. That we can't express that forgiveness, our denying of our rights. So I agree with the sociologists until Jesus shows up. We can't do that without Jesus. We can't. But the genius of the Jonah story and the prodigal son story, and this is where I'll end, and I love this. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I don't know if I've ever taught this. Neither of these stories resolve themselves. If you like happy endings in movies, this is not your story, right? How many of you are Cinderella, like Disney? We got to go there. It's got to be happy at the end. I know my wife is. The prodigal son, Jonah, Jonah, when the story ends, he's still sitting outside the city. I don't know if Jonah asked for forgiveness. God, I'm kind of a knucklehead. I'm sorry. I'll go back to the city and apologize. Like, I don't know what happens. The lost sons, the older brother is standing there. The father says, look, everything I've ever had is your party is for you too. Come back in. And it ends. We don't know if the story resolves. You know why I think that is? Because I think Jesus tells these stories. God tells this story to put the decision on us. To say, you're sitting outside the city judging your, your people these people that you're called to love. You've been the son who squandered all your wealth. You've been the daughter who wasted your life. 
You've been the older brother who looked at everybody else and said, they're not worthy. How, how dare they? And God is standing in these stories saying, I am throwing a stinking party for you. Will you come in or not? Will you come to this party or not? I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to guilt trip you, but I'm inviting you to something amazing. Friends, that's the story of Scripture. It's the story of Jonas, the story of the prodigal sons. It's the story of Jesus. And today as we pray, I'm offering that same invitation to you just to say to you, this is the story I want to tell. As your preacher, this is the story I want to share over and over and over again is that there's this amazing party and God's inviting you to the dance floor. Let's pray together.